I'm Taryn Ward. I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the social media landscape, to better understand the role social media plays in our everyday lives and society. Last episode, we looked at some of the difficulties or barriers to entry challenger social media networks face. In this episode, we'll think about what that means for the future of social media. We'll start with a question. Will we see a truly new social media offering in the next few years, or will any new options inevitably repeat what's already out there? It's a fair question, I think, and not one that has an easy answer. We think we're likely to see some changes from some of the larger platforms, more copycat and niche options emerge, and eventually, one or more challenger brands that offer something genuinely different. Last episode, we talked about why it's difficult to start a new social media network. Aside from the financial considerations, there's a cold start problem, and of course, getting the timing right, and competing with well-established and well-funded incumbent brands that are some of the best known in the world. Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. All of these networks and many others have demonstrated that in social media, surveillance capitalism means profits. Collect data, sell data, use data to sell advertisements, or at least it can mean profit. (laughs) Over the past dozen or more episodes, we've seen social media grow and evolve from America Online paid subscriptions to AOL Instant Messenger to MySpace to Facebook to Twitter to Instagram to TikTok. We'll take a deeper look at the privacy implications of moving to an advertising revenue model in another series, but all of these networks run on data now. In order to operate, these networks need users to create content, to scroll content, and to engage with content. And it's been hugely profitable. Yeah, that, that, that's right. In, in 2022, Meta had a total annual revenue of over 116 billion US dollars, which is why, of course, Mark can blow 34 billion trying to develop the metaverse and then stop. And LinkedIn, our favorite, I love to hate it, network, 13 billion US dollars. And Snapchat, 4.6 billion, to name just just three of the big ones. That's a lot of money flowing into a small number of hands there, Taryn. Yeah, over the course of one year. It's it's staggering, actually. And it goes back to you know the last episode where we talked about why this is continuing. And, and this is all really to say that this model isn't going anywhere. Why, why would anyone who's a part of these companies make a change when those are your revenue numbers for a single year? Governments may successfully start to impose some guardrails. We certainly appreciate their working diligently to do so now. But until there are real alternatives available, their options are limited too because connecting online is critical in so many ways. Partly these changes are because more and more people are so dissatisfied with the existing model and way of engaging online. More and more we hear people say, not just that they're worried about what's out there, but they really want something different. Yeah, I mean, that's been a constant feature of our conversation, even where people don't say, well, I don't trust the social media companies, I don't trust you know, Amazon or Google with my data. And Amazon is still, let's face it, extraordinarily popular. People love online shopping on Amazon. It's annoying. Even I have to resort to doing that at some time. But, you know, they do want a different social experience. And I think it goes back to that idea that we we talked about very briefly last time, that in the beginning, they served a purpose. Like Twitter was about sharing news events, not what it was designed for, but that's what people used it for. Facebook was about sharing with 
family members and colleagues who are presumably a long, a long way away, not what it was designed for, what it evolved into. But now it's all a machine to keep your attention on the screen. Um, it's like small snippets of video, which may or not may may or may not be informative, accurate, entertaining, but they're there and designed and delivered to you in a way which will absolutely keep your eyes on the screen so they can show you another advert and so they can get a couple of extra data points about what interests you so they can refine their model on um, what things you are likely to buy from the people who want to sell you things. That's That is it. So there is no engagement. We're not actually connected to people in any meaningful way. I think that's that's the tragedy. It was quite good and was ruined by the emergence of surveillance capitalism. I think the point you made there was really important, and that is that even if we can't always say what we want to change or what we're dissatisfied with or what we want the new thing to be, I think we all have a sense that there's something missing, there's something lacking. And, you know, this is why a lot of experts are saying you shouldn't use social media first thing in the morning. You shouldn't use it just before bed. And you should really set some boundaries in place in terms of when you're using it, how you're engaging, and monitor how it's affecting your mood. That really would have been unthinkable when when we were first starting because it was so exciting and so new and so great. And we were all so full of hope. And so I think it is really interesting to sort of step back. And we, you and I have obviously had a lot of time to do this because it's been our, our job for so long. But but I think it's a great opportunity for people to just step back for a second and think like, am I satisfied with the social media networks I'm using right now? And if not, why? What in trying to pinpoint exactly what that feeling is, what what is it missing? When when we talk about what that something else might be, not just in terms of what people want, but what what are we actually likely to see in terms of alternatives? And we think that many of the alternatives offered are likely to continue down the path of the niche networks we've looked at during other episodes. So these are really exclusive networks for specific communities of people or networks that have a very limited functionality but have broader appeal. We think that over the next three years, we're likely to see more and more of these emerge. Why? Although concerns about privacy, freedom of expression, and mis- and disinformation are hugely important, most people feel abuse and harassment most acutely in their daily lives. And niche networks can, in some cases, solve for this, or at least appear to do so. It also means that you're more likely to see content from people you actually know or friends or people who have a lot of overlap rather than posts from random people you really don't care very much about. And as things become more and more polarized, it's understandable that people would seek comfort from others who see the world the same way they do, even if they understand the risks around echo chambers, because the lack of support and protection on larger and more generally available platforms is so lacking. Similarly, niche function apps may provide a way for people to maintain a sense of connection with people they disagree with by focusing on only playing a game together or sharing a single photo together without the risk of a deeper and potentially more charged interaction. So, I mean, I, I think that that is all true, but I, I do think that the problem with these niche networks, and we talked about this when we talked about tribal, for example, that you, you, you're specifically building something for progressive left-wing Democrats in the US and, and similar people globally, but all they hear is is what they want to hear. And people already go down these YouTube tunnels, so they're only hearing the perspectives that they want to hear. They're not hearing any counter-arguments. There is no 
even internal debate in their own heads about you know whether their viewpoint is well founded and and as we know there was absolutely no sense checking or fact requirement to make a social media post you can in fact perfectly legitimately say that purple foods on monday and yellow foods on tuesday will help you lose weight it is obviously complete rubbish but you can do it you know we've seen which was it was it harvard or yale this last month trying to engage with adhd influencers on tiktok so that they're actually spreading factual information rather than just stuff because there's a bit of a problem so you know these echo chambers which tell people what they want to hear that they confirm their biases are are just going to push polarization um i think in the same way that you know the polarized discussion on twitter does that and the way that the 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 algorithm for you feeds into that so i'm a bit worried to be honest i think you're right obviously we think this this is what's going to happen but i think it's a problem Mm. We also think that there are going to be more uh, copycats, especially in terms of Twitter and uh, and TikTok, partly because um, founders can smell the blood in the water, because these platforms are likely to face increased regulatory scrutiny and public concern over the, the next 18, 18 months. And because of the, the funding issues that we discussed in our, in our, our previous uh, episode, the, these platforms are likely to carry over many of the what appealed to people from the original platforms, uh, issues uh, and, and, and all. And I think that's going to be a bit of a problem. What do you, you think, Taryn? I think that's right. I think the reason we've spent so much time talking about copycat and niche networks is because that's sort of the obvious path. And both in terms of funding, as, it, it, as we've talked about, but also it, it, it feels familiar. And there's a, there's a sense of, oh, I, I know how to do this. I know what this is. I'm not sure which is more worrying, to be honest. I don't know if it's niche networks or copycats. I think they have different worries. But I think really the problem is we're, we're going to repeat the same problems, as you said, with the copycat networks, and we're going to create new ones, even if we solve one of the issues by creating a niche network. We're only going to exacerbate or create new ones. And, and I think that's really worrying. On a, on a happier note, we also think there's an opportunity for something truly different that moves away from the existing revenue model and towards a focus on the experience of the people actually using the network. We don't think we'll be the only challenger to offer some form of subscription-based social media option, especially now that it's become largely accepted as something consumers are willing to pay for. We also think it's likely that we'll see some form of nonprofit platform emerge, think Wikipedia model, but not Wikipedia, that is likely controlled by a foundation, and even possible that we'll see networks created and supported by government actors, openly or not. But those are some of our our general predictions. There's one more thing that I think worth talking about, and this is this is really the first time we've spoken about AI or artificial intelligence, which often really means machine learning, but We'll leave that for now because right now they're often used interchangeably and sort of the that's become the collective understanding. But we expect there's going to be we expect there will be some new offerings centered around AI and and what that looks like will depend in part on how regulators respond to AI development. We've seen already a seriousness. We haven't when it comes to social media more generally. And I would cautiously but optimistically suggest that this is because regulators have learned their lesson. That sounds a bit harsh when I say it out loud, but 
In other words, we've seen what can happen when big tech, and big social in particular, operates in a space without much oversight. And regulators are working overtime right now to close any knowledge gaps, so there's not a repeat of this in the AI space. Often when this comes up, you only hear the extremes, right? Either AI is going to be our ruin, maybe immediately, overnight, but definitely sooner than we think, or AI is going to save us all, and any regulation is going to mean we can't compete with China, and they overtake us, and it will be our ruin. Fear is at the heart of both of these approaches, and, and often is when we're, we're looking at such extremes. But it really muddies the water in terms of having a rational conversation about what the actual threats and opportunities are right now. Forget the future. If we can't talk about what the actual threats and opportunities are right now, it's impossible to accurately speculate about what could come next. So I think we really need to start there, but that's a bit of an aside. I would suggest that AI can play a role and a positive role in building a new kind of social network, in some cases largely to address problems that are created or made worse by new AI products. So the first thing it's worth thinking about is what it will mean for content moderation. AI brings with it the potential for a lot of fake or bot accounts. So this is a problem solved and to some extent created by AI, but, but bear with me. So AI brings the potential to have a lot more bot accounts, the ability to create really bad content quickly. And not just bad content in terms of harmful, but content that's just not good. Words and images that fill feeds, brain space and time without contributing anything or even really entertaining us in a meaningful way. AI can help with some of this as long as we use a human on the loop approach where a real person is reviewing each of these AI decisions and, and there's a meaningful sense of oversight. It's also, AI is also really great at quickly detecting dangerous and abusive content and identifying potentially dangerous patterns of behavior, which is especially important for networks with young people. And this is one area where we're not just talking about AI addressing problems presented by AI, but AI addressing problems that were there long before this was a term that was part of our, our collective understanding. I have a good example of this, and Steve, you and I have spent some time talking about this. If an account claims to be 15 years old and is engaging with other people around the same age, AI tools are very good at predicting whether or not this person is actually within two years of the age claimed, and also identifying flagging behaviors that indicate grooming in a way that would be really difficult for a human person without spending hours and hours, which is really difficult to do at scale. AI can flag these potential problems and then allow human moderators to investigate more efficiently. So really to lessen the load of, of the burden on moderators, which we know is, is really heavy. It's also really great at detecting modified images. People are bad at this. No one wants to hear that. We don't like to believe or admit that, but we are. We're really bad at it, and it's only becoming more difficult. Sometimes it doesn't matter, or at least sometimes the stakes are lower, but being able to know the difference between a genuine image and one that's been heavily modified is going to become incredibly important. Finally, and this is definitely a last but not least, AI offers some great opportunities in terms of inclusion. So we can look at written content to voice and voice content to text, in a way that's going to make it a lot easier for people to engage online where, where it would have been difficult before. That's not to say there aren't risks. There are so many risks, but 
There's also a huge opportunity, especially where social networks are willing to keep users or consumers, or in our case, members, at the center of their decision making. Wow, that was a that was a lot of ground we just covered there, Taryn. I mean, and and a really awesome a really awesome summary. And I, I, you know, I often think maybe it's that regulators and civil servants and lawyers have. Have, have sort of like learned from social media. But what I actually think is that most of those people are Gen X now, the ones who were in a position to make changes. And they grew up having watched war games when they were kids and know that AI intuitively can be a problem unless you teach it tic-tac-toe or noughts and crosses for those of us who are English. And then, of course, James Cameron subjected them to Skynet, not that long afterwards in relative terms and the potential problems of ai taking over the world and 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 so they were primed to be worried about ai or as you more accurately say in the present context machine learning and they were not primed to worry about online conversations because that was always considered to be awesome um and i think the reason i think my version is probably more true is because Politicians and policymakers are struggle to keep up with things at the cutting edge, and this was true, um, you know, with bioterrorism, which was a concern of mine previously. You know, we we had me. I went to meetings with um, with the FBI and people from DNA companies and universities and um, health agencies, and the FBI was trying to get people to sign up to sort of voluntary codes of practice because. Congress in the United States wasn't able to pass legislation and agencies weren't able to make regulation fast enough to keep up with the speed that tech evolved. And the problem with voluntary code to practice is it's in the, it's in the name. It's, it's voluntary and open to interpretation and there's no teeth. And, and I think, you know, we really do need decision makers to make decisions based on what's best for, for people. And I think your last point there, it's like all of this technology is great if it is focused on human-centered design, if it's it, if it's designed to make the lives of the people who use it better, more engaging, more connected, happier, healthier, then that's good design. And the the ways you can use AI, as you pointed out, absolutely brilliant. You, you, there's incredible things you can do. But the reality is, I'm not sure that are you know either the UK government who is caught in this thing. It's like you've got these voices who say there's so much money to be made, and look you. You know, it's going to make money into the treasury coffers, and these other people who's like everyone's going to die. They they get stuck in this sort of legislative paralysis. Look at how long the online safety bill took to pass, and how much revision it went, and how much debate there was about doing anything at all. So, you know, I think there is going to be an opportunity for someone, and 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 uh, you know, hopefully, we're part of that picture to develop these cool member-centered networks. Um, which use AI in a way which enhances people's lives and, and, and drives connection and inclusion. But I think we're both probably worried about those ice bath loving, oatmeal latte swigging Stanford graduates who live in the valley and worked for a startup and had an exit, having control of this because that's what white men who did those things do, right? I mean, what, what do you think? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I offered probably a very optimistic view of regulators. And I use that term really broadly. And I think yours is on the more pessimistic side. I don't think you're necessarily wrong. Obviously, I like my version for, for a lot of different so reasons. Why? 
I would offer, yeah, I would offer maybe a third that that maybe splits the middle a little bit, and it's less of an answer and more of a just a a question and a way of thinking about things. So, you know, back back in the day, back years and years ago when I was still in law school, one of the things I was really interested in was how courts make decisions. And there's a perception, especially in the U.S., about the Supreme Court um, making these big decisions that changes the trajectory of law. And it changes how we understand the law, but it also makes these huge cultural changes. And there, there are different examples of this, but one of them that often, often comes up is marriage. So, so there's a famous case where the court said basically that interracial marriage was a right. You, you had the right if you were a black person to marry a white person and, and vice versa. And the court is often patted on the back for this. Um, school integration is another is another one, but let's let's stick with marriage because then we can talk about gay marriage, which came you know not so long ago, and I think people people probably remember more easily. The reality is when you look around the surrounding circumstances, the court wasn't early; they weren't on the cutting edge. They were responding to what society already wanted and demanded, not you know. What were the voters thinking? What was the general feeling around these issues? And if you start to dig into that, it it looks a little bit different. So it it stops looking like the Supreme Court is out there sticking its neck out and starts to look more like they sort of waited a bit. Not that they weren't applying the law the way that they should have. I'm not making not not making any of those accusations, but they waited until public sentiment was well behind them and then chose their priorities and acted. And I know it's not the same in the UK, but I think about, you know, here in the UK recently, there was this big AI summit and Rishi Sunak sat down with Elon Musk, um, which I'm intentionally not commenting on in detail, but I will But I will say this, for, for a sitting prime minister to sit down with the head of a social media company who is also currently, I think, the wealthiest man alive, to talk about AI in this way, it was a really important moment. I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. I think you know my my feelings are generally that it's it's more bad than good. But but the bigger point is this is a, a priority, and it's it's been a priority in the UK government. It's been a priority in the EU and the the White House last week issued a new executive order that is really important and we're going to dive into. But my point largely is you and I may be, may both be a little right, but I think it's the voters who, who are really leading the charge. And if people start to worry about this and care about this, we may see changes that are that are faster and better than what we saw in the social media context. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to fit in two Dr. Ian Malcolm quotes from Jurassic Park here. And I think that they, they fit, although they were slightly different topics. He was talking about genetic power. It's like the most awesome, genetic power is the most awesome force the planet has ever seen, but you wield it like a kid who's found his dad's gun. And I think that's the problem that we're both worried about and society is worried about with tech bros having their hands on this. And, and then there was another quote, which was, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think about whether they should. And and that is absolutely true. And that's the role of government and the law and regulation. And 
I think you're absolutely right about voters, like governments respond to what voters want. That's predicated on voters having a reasonable understanding of what's going on. And I think that you know, podcasts like this and and perhaps much many, many more ways of discussing this in a reasonable, non-inflammatory way uh, is what's needed to help people do that. I think let's leave it with those quotes sort of hanging in the air because I think they are really powerful things to to take home and think about. Next time, we'll wrap up our series on the existing social media landscape with a look at how these changes provide consumers, brands, and influencers new opportunities. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. You can find this and more information about us at thebrightapp.com. Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones. And I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. Beyond the headlines.